At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. I thought that you could either be a chef or a restaurant critic. I thought that those were like, it was like mm -hmm. a cartoon. It was like less nuanced than Ratatouille conception of what jobs there were in food media. And I remember reading Michael Rollman's book and I was like, oh no, I will not be able to cut that mustard. I'm a small, weak man. So I will become a restaurant critic instead of becoming a chef. <laughs> and then I, then I did that. So that's all it takes. And then you're done. That was Lucky Peach founder Peter Meehan talking about how he got his start in food media. It's an excerpt from one of the very first Burnt Toast episodes we ever ran on first food jobs. And it's also the one you loved the most. I'm Kenzie Wilbur, your host now and your co-host then. And today we wanted to run an update to the show. In the tape you just heard, Peter mentions the moment that food started to become a thing in his own life. But since his early career, food has also become much more of a thing in general, with a capital T. There are scads of jobs now that didn't exist then. And in the original episode, I spoke with him and Amanda Hesser, my boss and the co-founder of Food52, about their advice for landing those jobs. At the end of this episode, Amanda and Peter revisit what's changed about that advice and the industry in the past year and a half. But first, for those of you who haven't heard the original episode, here's a recap on what Peter and Amanda were contending with, the very different but mutually meandering paths they took to get to where they are now. There are so many points of entry to get into food or food media and so many endpoints, but I don't think that that is obvious when you are starting out. And maybe it's different now for a younger generation when there's a, a bigger, wider food world to get into. But I know my, my first official food job where I was given American dollars for the handling or interaction with food was at a coffee shop. <laughs> I have a block from my house where I grew up in Chicago. And I was like a pimply faced 14 or 15 or 16 year old who didn't know anything about food and was probably like a walking food service violation. <laughs> and they had coffee and sandwiches and pastries and... I was a counter boy there and, you know, had to do a little light sandwich bar work. And the like the three things I remember are these donuts. They would come in these big boxes. I was always surprised. Today. You know, it was like a sheet pan mm -hmm. size box with these chocolate frosted donuts. And I ate so many of those that I wasn't supposed to eat, but I just ate them all day long. It just really destroyed her profit margin and probably her business eating her donuts. I remember <laughs> the delivery of sandwich ingredients because uh, <clears throat> we had to make egg salad. And it was just a big bucket of hard-boiled eggs in brine, peeled hard-boiled eggs. You know, like a wow. like a Halloween thing, like you would wow. have to plunge your hand into, and we made like blindfolded and yeah, figure yeah. out what's Wait, in what the bucket. Wait, what was that for? Like Oof. instead of boiling your own wow. eggs, buy pre-boiled eggs. So um, clearly, you know, when you write about food now, and when you launch Lucky Peach, you I were thinking about that those eggs. Yeah, 
food didn't mean anything to me then. And I had an, I went from there to like a busboy job later. And that's where I saw like the first kitchen, you know, the guys in the kitchen had the food. So if you wanted fried chicken fingers on your salad, you had to be nice to them. And they also had access to the booze room, which even as a 17 year old, I knew was like a good place to be. So that's when I started thinking that cooking was cool and then went briefly to college and dropped out and moved to New York. And that was when food started to become a thing in my life. I mean, maybe it was also on some level, like kind of like a superhero vision of what the food world is like. But as I started to look for employment, because I was a college dropout in New York City and I needed to have money, the first job I ended up getting in the industry that I'm still in now was at Food & Wine Magazine as an event planning intern for their annual event, the Food & Wine Magazine Classic at Aspen. They had always had girls from BU as interns, and I guess that year was just a bumper crop of <laughs> terrible BU girls, and none of them got the job. So my friend was interning at Food & Wine. He was an NYU journalism student, and he hated it. He wanted to be writing for Out Magazine. He quit shortly after, but he got me an interview there, and I was like 20-year-old aspiring food nerd, which I think was a rarer commodity back then that Absolutely. someone could come in and, 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 and speak with a certain amount of fluency about chefs and food and have opinions about things. So they hired me, and I worked on that. That was my immersion into what the food world was. I saw what like special projects managers were and like the four guys who just sit there and massage numbers to make circulation seem good. And you know, like and you were sold. Yeah. And I was you know, <laughs> but I, I did anything I could do to walk across to the other part of the building and go talk to the editorial staff. Yep. The first mm -hmm. editorial job I got was when I quit working in PR. I had a few good con like people I'd had good times with or good contacts with and I didn't know what I was doing. So I just emailed them and be like, Hey, today's my last day. I don't know what I'm doing. I quit with no job or plans. And one of them was this guy, Peter Elliott, who was at Bloomberg. He was just happened to be starting work on this biography of Sirio Maggioni. And he's like, would you be interested in doing transcription? I needed to do anything for money at the time. So I did. And I showed up to his apartment. He handed me a bunch of tapes. He's like, I need these as fast as possible. And he left, just figure it out. And it's Sirio Maggioni, like whose unintelligible Italian accent for I ended up transcribing like 75 hours of, but it was, uh, <laughs> but it ended up, and then the, the, you know, they needed recipes for the book. So I ended up doing the recipe development and writing for it. So that was my first opportunity to do that. And even though it seems like this kind of menial thing of just listening and typing, it ended up being this amazing education in the history of New York restaurants that sure. I couldn't have gotten any other way. And I couldn't have heard so many people being like intimate and honest and hearing everything that's on the cutting room floor from all these chefs and restaurateurs who'd been part of the Le Cirque world if I hadn't ended up working on that that book. So it is that thing of just being open and making yes. contacts and being like, yeah I'll, yeah, I'll, you know, you have to do whatever for like the first decade. Amanda was in the business of doing whatever for the first decade, too. Peter Meehan jokes that she arrived fully formed at The New York Times, where she worked for many years, but we promise she didn't. Here's proof. I um, I went to college and studied finance. And so for my summer job, I was thinking about, like, well, how can I make a lot of money for the summer? And so I heard that you can make a lot of money bartending. And being kind of a nerd, I was like, well, I can't, like, I don't really drink that much. I just drink beer. And um, I don't really know anything about cocktails. So I better go to bartending school. <laughs> so I went to... Boston Bartending School, and I got my certificate. And at that point, like... What is the scene at a bartending school? Like, who is the crowd who is getting like, educated? Kind of like fratty guys, I would say. Okay. That was sort of my 
memory. But, you know, I was really focused on my studies. In school, you're not using actual foods. You're just using, like, colored liquids. Oh, really? But to me, that's all it was anyhow because, <laughs> like, I was like a martini. You end up with something that's kind of clear, sometimes a little cloudy. So I was just memorizing numbers and, like, proportions without any appreciation or even sense of, like, what it should yeah, taste how did like. You, how did you know? How, yeah, exactly. I just, like, memorized and so I got my certificate, and then I, like, wrote a resume on, like, nice paper stock paper. And I showed up at the best restaurant in my town, which was called Fallsport, which was um, opened by two people from Brooklyn. And they, like, <laughs> mistakenly thought that Holly, Pennsylvania was cool or going to be cool. And, um, like, you know, I really like to apply for the bartending job. And he kind of laughed at me because you, you could be a bartender before you were of drinking age, which was strange. Kind of slim pickings in Holly, Pennsylvania. So he hired me. And then <laughs> the first night I'm, I'm on duty, this couple from New York comes in and they said to me, so what do you got on draft? And I said, what's draft? <laughs> <laughs> because I knew the term tap, like what's on tap, but I didn't know what a draft was. And they uh, thought that was incredibly charming and left me a $10 tip. Wow. Um, wow. But soon after that, like my family and friends came in and it took me like 10 minutes to make a martini. And my boss kind of was starting to pick up on this, that there was a, like a long, you were like, like sometimes clear, a little cloudy. <laughs> yeah. I think so I got it. He pulled, he liked me though. I think because I had a good attitude and he just pulled, eventually pulled me over and was like, you know, have you ever waited tables? And I was like, nope, <laughs> but I'll try. Bartending was not a long-lived experience, despite my certificate. Your, your formal education. Yes. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. And though Amanda Hesser slinging clear, sometimes a little cloudy martinis behind a bar sounds like a peak, it was far from it. Here's the rest of Amanda's first food job history. So, I, yeah, I had like a bunch of kind of short and kind of nutty jobs. So while I was in college, I wanted to get into the food world. And so I this was post bartending and waitressing. And um, so I just like pinpointed my favorite restaurants in Boston and then wrote letters to them. And one was to Jody Adams, uh, what was then called Michaela's, uh, now Rialto. And I just said, you know, I'll do anything. I just would love to be in your kitchen. And somehow like on my resume, I, I put that I loved rollerblading. And that's what caught her eye. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> She's like, that's cool. I think she rollerbladed too. And Resume so, writers take note. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so like I got that. So it was like my first um, exposure to a, like a real urban, well-regarded kitchen. And it was a kitchen that was dominated by women actually, which was unusual. And it was a very civilized kitchen. On the line like was Suzanne Gowen and, you know, various other people kind of were making their way through that kitchen at the time because it was one of the better restaurants in Boston. Like, I have to say it was like a such a soft entry into kitchen life. It was definitely not like Tony Bourdain material. Oh yeah. Like I plated dishes. I like, I strained stocks. I ran and got butter for the line cooks. I just did whatever, you know, I was just so delighted to be there. And then I also worked in Cambridge at a, what was like an early, like good bakery called Panini. And so, and it was such a small bakery that I would do this on Saturday nights, which tells you a lot about my social life in college. But um, 
I would get there at, I think it was like nine, and then we would literally like mix the dough, let it rise, shape it, bake it. I would pack it into bags, and then I would drive a truck around Boston at like 5 a.m. to all the like top restaurants and hotels. It was actually like an amazing job because also I got to like peek into all the best kitchens, and it was like this very concentrated education. After college, I um, I worked at Bread Alone for a summer, and then I went to Europe, and I worked in, like, four different countries there. And, like, I had a lot of strange jobs, including in Germany, I worked at this um, bakery where I, I lived above the bakery, and the owner of the bakery was a big hunter. And so he kept all of his taxidermied bears and, like, exotic animals in the room that I stayed in. So, like, <laughs> if I, I would, and I would wake up to the sound of the oven going on. It was, like, this big, like like kind of deep rumble. So it would wake me up around four. And it's because I was always like discombobulated. I would like often like trip over the bear head (laughs) as I'm like stumbling to get my clothes on and go downstairs to the bakery. And there I worked with like 40 men, you know, rolling pretzels. And the bakery owner was, uh, he had quite the temper and he was known for, if he got mad at you, he would hit hit people with baguettes, Um, (laughs) which isn't like the toughest weapon, but it was a little weird. Did you ever get hit with a baguette? I did not. I was like, I was going to follow every rule. (laughs) So I'm curious about more of the Europe part, because I think there's this expectations versus reality thing. Like I, I, dreamt of like picking beets in Alsace or something. I don't even know if they they grow beets in Alsace, but like I'm sure that's backbreaking. I'm sure it's really hard. I mean, I did the grape harvest and I lasted three days. It was in France, in Burgundy, basically. We, we, I stayed in a bed that literally had a straw mattress. And <laughs> I was so sore that I was crying. And after three days, I was like, I'm sorry, but I, you know, I've got to go. I've, you know, something has come up. What is it about doing a wine harvest that's so romantic sounding that I, I spent an entire summer researching vineyards out in California to go pick grapes at? What is it about, like, I'm going to go pick grapes. I'm going to get, like, close to the land and write poetry about it. What is it? Because you're I, dumb and young and you don't no, realize. I wasn't attracted to the romance. Like, I like manual labor. Like, I like doing that kind of stuff. But I didn't realize how just like, three days of it ill-equipped right. I was for it. <laughs> no, but I actually wanted to experience, like, what does it take to get wine on the table? Which is why, like, I actually am so glad I worked in restaurants because it is hard work. I liked that sort of, like, getting the blood, sweat, and tears of, like, mm-hmm. behind the food world. And I actually feel like... It later helped me with my writing because I felt like I had empathy, you know, especially when I was writing about like, you know, chefs or restaurants or anybody who was making food. Amanda wrote an article in 2012 for Food 52 called Advice for Future Food Writers. And in it, she outlined some of what she's saying here, that empathy and learning how certain parts of the food world work by doing that actual work will help you in a future food media job. Get your hands dirty, she said, in as many places as possible. Skip journalism and cooking school. Instead, use that money to support yourself while you do mostly low-paying food jobs. Wash dishes in a restaurant. Work on a farm. Get a job in a food factory. Assist a commercial fisherman. Volunteer at a co-op. And from earlier in the article, she says, At the time I got started in the 1990s, I was considering becoming a bread baker. But you couldn't get anyone to hire you as a writer if you worked, quote-unquote, in the field. There was widespread snobbery toward non-professional writers and an assumption that it would be a conflict of interest or just too much self-interest for a chef to write about cooking or a farmer about raising chickens. The observers kept out the doers, a system that never really made any sense. Now, people want to hear from the doers. When we recorded that podcast on first food jobs, we revisited those ideas. 
you know, these days there, you know, there's NYU food studies, there are food writing programs at colleges all over the place these days. There weren't even when I was in school, which wasn't that long ago. But like when you both have written about advice for future food writers, you say, save your money, don't go to journalism school, don't go to cooking school, do something else, do anything else. It seems like you both followed your own advice on that front. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we did. There was really only professional education for food related things. There wasn't the breadth and variety of things. Well, yeah, there, I mean, there were schools, like if you wanted to become a chef, I, I sort of resisted them because I felt like they, they sort of put you on this very structured path. And like the only way to kind of have a independent path was to just go your own way. And the thing that's wonderful like about the food world is that especially in restaurants, anyone can kind of just hop in. Like as long as you're like willing and able, mm -hmm. you can get a chance, mm -hmm. which is really unusual in many careers, if you think about it. Do you think it's still that way? Yeah, I do. I mean, maybe less so at the highest end, like the finest restaurants, but I do think so. In fact, I don't get the sense that like most cooks in, in good kitchens in New York have gone, have a cooking school degree. Do you? No, but I think it is. I think it's harder to jump in, in like a Manhattan scene where there's no, sure. there's no space for humans to begin with than it mm -hmm. is probably in other places where there's like just physically a little bit more room to accommodate somebody who's not going to be pulling their own weight for a little while. But I know Sam Henderson, this woman who is the chef de cuisine of uh, WD-50, worked at Scholastic in book publishing <laughs> and walked in off the street and was like, I I'll help peel potatoes. And they were like, we don't peel a lot of potatoes here, but come on in. And, and over the course yeah. of like eight years, she went from not knowing the difference between parsley and cilantro when she came in to being, you know, completely versed in everything that, that Wiley does in his kitchen. And not even just restaurants, like people just you know, with no cooking education or starting food businesses. It's like much more liberated now. We've both been in this game for so long that things have changed. I mean, there is Food 52, which didn't exist. There's Lucky Peach, which didn't exist when we were coming up. What do you see as being different now versus when we were starting out? Well, there's so many more jobs. Like there's so many more things you can do and that are kind of like widely accepted. Like you can work on a farm and it's cool. It's not like an odd misstep in your career. You know, you can study pickles. You can like dive deep in like an area of interest that I think it was like much harder to do, don't you think? I actually think, I mean, given how much has evolved in the jobs that are available and the things that you can do in this industry now, not that much has changed, I think, in how to be successful in it. I mean, we're surrounded by now graduate programs in food and and all of these official ways you can get your certificate. Um, but really, you need to be willing to do whatever. You need to be good at emailing people. Um, and you, you need to be like willing to try stuff. I, I think still looking at resumes and reading them now, I would rather have someone with an interesting experience and background than like a you know, cum laude at NYU Food Studies. It's funny because we were just talking about this the other day uh, in the office, and we never look at where, where someone went to school. We look for people who've done interesting things. I did a talk at Yale, and afterwards I met a lot of the people who were there, and they're obviously all, like, smarter than me and talented and focused. But there was one kid who had had surgery for like his Crohn's disease like the day before and I guess was really shy and was possibly out of his mind on painkillers and left the hospital to come to the talk and meet me afterwards. And the event organizer told me about that after I had met him and he spoke Chinese and took photographs. And I'm like that dedication, you know, like the fact that someone's going to do yeah. that, like mm -hmm. I don't care that you went to Yale. I don't yeah. care that you speak yeah. Chinese. I mm -hmm. care that you want something you're interested enough that you're going to you're going to follow it that way. So yeah. that's always the thing that I look for in the people that we're hiring is just that 
it's the thing that they want to do more than anything else. And then I feel like opportunities open up for people with that level of interest and commitment. So do Amanda and Peter still give the same advice? I asked. I wouldn't change that recommendation at all. In fact, um, I think it applies still and is a kind of timeless recommendation, not just for the food world, but for other professions as well. I mean, if you go out and get a broader experience and a broader sense of the different issues in an industry, the challenges, um, the different kinds of people involved and what makes an industry tick, so to speak. Um, I think that that's going to be valuable to your career no matter what. And even if you're not, it's not, not just for being a writer, but for, you know, if you wanted to be a chef, you know, most chefs don't just cook in one kitchen. They often try to get experience in lots of different places and environments and styles of, with different styles of cooking. And so, um, you know, it's, it's just, I think, generally good advice. And I just think that the reason I gave it was because People previously had taken a much sort of narrower path, I think, to um, food writing. And as a result, we're kind of writing less broadly or comprehensively about what was going on in the world and how food applied to much more than just, you know, what seemed to be happening in your kitchen. I think if there's a change that I've seen in the past even year, you know, with the rise of social media and the fact that media companies like Lucky Peach and I'm sure 52, Food 52 are dedicating budgets to staffing people in those positions. It creates the opportunity for people to who are interested in food but also interested in making different forms of media to find opportunities. But, I, th- you know, in some ways I think it makes it more difficult because all I needed when I started out was – some basic facility with grammar and a general idea of what a hamburger was and wasn't. And now, you know, when I see the resumes of people who can send me a link to their Instagram where they make stop motion videos for fun on the weekends, which I still don't know how to do as a relatively full functioning adult, it makes them seem like, you know, like triple threats who I really, you know, and then I'm, I become far more interested in hiring them. So I think that diversifying your media making skills is, is something that's like infinitely more valuable than it was when I started out. And just like diversity of experience really, I think enriches the work that you do. Similarly, uh, diversity of people, who are covering this industry is hugely valuable and is, has been lacking for ever, really. Food writing has traditionally been white, <laughs> a, lot, a, a lot of um, kind of older, kind of urban professionals. And it's very limiting in terms of perspective. You know, there, <laughs> there is a whole wide world of different kinds of people who don't live in cities, um, and don't have access to the same kinds of um, restaurants and ingredients. And there's people who live in different, you know, socioeconomic stratum and who have different ethnic backgrounds who have a lot to add to the conversation and they really haven't been included. And I think it's really our responsibility to try to change that. And I think, you know, it's something that like we are thinking a lot about at our company, but I think it's something that everyone in this industry should be thinking about and kind of finding a new path. Go forth and get those food jobs. And seriously, we're always happy to chat with you for an informational interview or a cup of coffee. 
Email us at editors at food52.com. That's it for this episode of Burnt Toast. Thanks to Amanda Hesser and Peter Meehan, and also to my producer, Kristen Meinzer, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show. Our Twitter handle is at food52, or you can leave us a review on iTunes. I'm Kenzie Wilbur. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much for listening.